0: part 2b of auguste comte and positivism this librivox recording is in the public domain auguste comte and positivism by john stuart mill part 2b the explanation of this we find in an original mental twist very common in french thinkers and by which m. comte was distinguished beyond them all he could not dispense with what he called unity It was for the sake of unity that a religion was, in his eyes, desirable, not in the mere sense of unanimity, but in a far wider one. A religion must be something by which to systematize human life. His definition of it, in the Catechism, is the state of complete unity which distinguishes our existence, at once personal and social, when all its parts, both moral and physical, converge habitually to a common destination. Such a harmony, individual and collective, being incapable of complete realization in an existence so complicated as ours, this definition of religion characterizes the immovable type towards which tends more and more the aggregate of human efforts. Our happiness and our merit consist especially in approaching as near as possible to this unity, of which the gradual increase constitutes the best measures of real improvement, personal or social. To this theme he continually returns, and argues that this unity or harmony among all the elements of our life is not consistent with the predominance of the personal propensities, since these drag us in different directions. It can only result from the subordination of them all to the social icelings which may be made to act in a uniform direction by a common system of convictions, and which differ from the personal inclinations in this that we all naturally encourage them in one another, while on the contrary social life is a perpetual restraint upon the selfish propensities. The Fons Aurorum, in M. Comte's later speculations, is this inordinate demand for unity and systematization, This is the reason why it does not suffice to him that all should be ready, in case of need, to postpone their personal interests and inclinations to the requirements of the general good. He demands that each should regard as vicious any care at all for his personal interests, except as a means to the good of others, should be ashamed of it, should strive to cure himself of it, because his existence is not systematized is not in complete unity, as long as he cares for more than one thing. The strangest part of the matter is, that this doctrine seems to M. Comte to be axiomatic, that all perfection consists in unity, he apparently considers to be a maxim which no sane man thinks of questioning. It never seems to enter into his conceptions that any one could object, ab initio, and ask. Why this universal systematizing, systematizing, systematizing? Why is it necessary that all human life should point to but one object, and be cultivated into a system of means to a single end? May it not be the fact that mankind, who after all are made up of single human beings, obtain a greater sum of happiness when each pursues his own, under the rules and conditions required by the good of the rest, than when each makes the good of the rest his only subject? and allows himself no personal pleasures not indispensable to the preservation of his faculties? The regimen of a blockaded town should be cheerfully submitted to when high purposes require it, but is it the ideal perfection of human existence? M. Comte sees none of these difficulties. The only true happiness, he affirms, is in the exercise of the affections. He had found it so for a whole year, which was enough to enable him to get to the bottom of the question. And to judge whether he could do without everything else. Of course the supposition was not to be heard of that any other person could require, or be the better for, what M. Comte did not value. Unity and systematization absolutely demanded that all other people should model themselves after M. Comte. It would never do to suppose that there could be more than one road to human happiness, or more than one ingredient in it. The most prejudiced must admit that this religion without theology is not chargeable with relaxation of moral restraints. On the contrary, it prodigiously exaggerates them. It makes the same ethical mistake as the theory of Calvinism, that every act in life should be done for the glory of God, and that whatever is not a duty is a sin. It does not perceive that between the region of duty and that of sin there is an intermediate space the region of positive worthiness. It is not good that persons should be bound by other people's opinion, to do everything that they would deserve praise for doing. There is a standard of altruism to which all should be required to come up, and a degree beyond it which is not obligatory but meritorious. It is incumbent on every one to restrain the pursuit of his personal objects within the limits consistent with the essential interests of others. What those limits are? it is the province of ethical science to determine, and to keep all individuals and aggregations of individuals within them is the proper office of punishment and of moral blame. If in addition to fulfilling this obligation persons make the good of others a direct object of disinterested exertions, postponing or sacrificing to it even innocent personal indulgences, they deserve gratitude and honor, and are fit objects of moral praise. So long as they are in no way compelled to this conduct by any external pressure, there cannot be too much of it. But a necessary condition is its spontaneity, since the notion of a happiness for all, procured by the self-sacrifice of each, if the abnegation is really felt to be a sacrifice, is a contradiction. Such spontaneity by no means excludes sympathetic encouragement. But the encouragement should take the form of making self-devotion pleasant not that of making everything else painful. The object should be to stimulate services to humanity by their natural rewards, not to render the pursuit of our own good in any other manner impossible by visiting it with the reproaches of other and of our own conscience. The proper office of these sanctions is to enforce upon every one the conduct necessary to give all other persons their fair chance conduct which chiefly consists in not doing them harm and not impeding them in anything which without harming others does good to themselves to this must of course be added that when we either expressly or tacitly undertake to do more we are bound to keep our promise and inasmuch as every one who avails himself of the advantages of society leads others to expect from him all such positive good offices and disinterested services as the moral improvement attained by mankind has rendered customary. He deserves moral blame if without just cause he disappoints that expectation. Through this principle the domain of moral duty is always widening. When what once was uncommon virtue becomes common virtue, it comes to be numbered among obligations, while a degree exceeding what has grown common remains simply meritorious. M. Comte is accustomed to draw most of his ideas of moral cultivation from the discipline of the Catholic Church. Had he followed that guidance in the present case he would have been less wide of the mark. For the distinction which we have drawn was fully recognized by the sagacious and far-sighted men who created the Catholic ethics. It is even one of the stock reproaches against Catholicism that it has two standards of morality, and does not make obligatory on all Christians the highest rule of Christian perfection. It has one standard which, faithfully acted up to, suffices for salvation, another, and a higher which, when realized, constitutes a saint. M. Comte, perhaps unconsciously, for there is nothing that he would have been more unlikely to do if he had been aware of it has taken a leaf out of the book of the despised Protestantism. Like the extreme Calvinists, he requires that all believers shall be saints, and damns then, after his own fashion, if they are not. Our conception of human life is different. We do not conceive life to be so rich in enjoyments that it can afford to forego the cultivation of all those which address themselves to what Monsieur Comte terms the egoistic propensities on the contrary we believe that a sufficient gratification of these short of excess but up to the measure which renders the enjoyment greatest is almost always favorable to the benevolent affections the moralization of the personal enjoyments we deem to consist not in reducing them to the smallest possible amount but in cultivating the habitual wish to share them with others and with all others and scorning to desire anything for oneself which is incapable of being so shared There is only one passion or inclination which is permanently incompatible with this condition, the love of domination, or superiority, for its own sake, which implies, and is grounded on, the equivalent depression of other people. As a rule of conduct, to be enforced by moral sanctions, we think no more should be attempted than to prevent people from doing harm to others, or omitting to do such good as they have undertaken. Demanding no more than this, society, in any tolerable circumstances, obtains much more, for the natural activity of human nature, shut out from all noxious directions, will expand itself in useful ones. This is our conception of the moral rule prescribed by the religion of humanity. But above this standard there is an unlimited range of moral worth, up to the most exalted heroism, which should be fostered by every positive encouragement, though not converted into an obligation. It is as much a part of our scheme as of M. Comte's that the direct cultivation of altruism, and the subordination of egoism to it, far beyond the point of absolute moral duty, should be one of the chief aims of education, both individual and collective. We even recognize the value, for this end, of ascetic discipline in the original Greek sense of the word. We think with Dr. Johnson that he who has never denied himself anything which is not wrong cannot be fully trusted for denying himself everything which is so. We do not doubt that children and young persons will one day be again systematically disciplined in self-mortification, that they will be taught, as in antiquity, to control their appetites, to brave dangers, and submit voluntarily to pain as simple exercises in education something has been lost as well as gained by no longer giving to every citizen the training necessary for a soldier nor can any pains taken be too great to form the habit and develop the desire of being useful to others and to the world by the practice independently of reward and of every personal consideration of positive virtue beyond the bounds of prescribed duty no efforts should be spared to associate the pupil's self-respect and his desire of the respect of others with service rendered to humanity, when possible collectively, but at all events, what is always possible in the persons of its individual members. There are many remarks and precepts in M. Comte's volumes which, as no less pertinent to our conception of morality than to his, we fully accept. For example, without admitting that to make calculs personnels is contrary to morality, We agree with him in the opinion that the principal hygienic precepts should be inculcated not solely or principally as maxims of prudence, but as a matter of duty to others, since by squandering our health we disable ourselves from rendering to our fellow-creatures the services to which they are entitled. As M. Comte truly says, the prudential motive is by no means fully sufficient for the purpose, even physicians often disregarding their own precepts. The personal penalties of neglect of health are commonly distant, as well as more or less uncertain, and require the additional and more immediate sanction of moral responsibility. M. Comte, therefore, in this instance is, we conceive, right in principle, though we have not the smallest doubt that he would have gone into extreme exaggeration in practice, and would have wholly ignored the legitimate liberty of the individual to judge for himself respecting his own bodily conditions with due relation to the sufficiency of his means of knowledge, and taking the responsibility of the result. Connected with the same considerations is another idea of M. Comte, which has great beauty and grandeur in it, and the realization of which, within the bounds of possibility, would be a cultivation of the social feelings on a most essential point. It is that every person who lives by any useful work, should be habituated to regard himself not as an individual working for his private benefit, but as a public functionary, and his wages of whatever sort as not the remuneration or purchase-money of his labour which should be given freely, but as the provision made by society to enable him to carry it on, and to replace the materials and products which have been consumed in the process. M. Comte observes that in modern industry every one in fact works much more for others than for himself, since his productions are to be consumed by others, and it is only necessary that his thoughts and imagination should adapt themselves to the real state of the fact. The practical problem, however, is not quite so simple, for a strong sense that he is working for others may lead to nothing better than feeling himself necessary to them and instead of freely giving his commodity may only encourage him to put a high price upon it. What M. Comte really means is that we should regard working for the benefit of others as a good in itself, that we should desire it for its own sake, and not for the sake of remuneration, which cannot justly be claimed for doing what we like, that the proper return for a service to society is the gratitude of society and that the moral claim of any one in regard to the provision for his personal wants is not a question of quid pro quo in respect to his cooperation, but of how much the circumstances of society permit to be assigned to him, consistently with the just claims of others. To this opinion we entirely subscribe. The rough method of settling the laborer's share of the produce, the competition of the market, may represent a practical necessity, but certainly not a moral ideal. Its defense is that civilization has not hitherto been equal to organizing anything better than this first rude approach to an equitable distribution. Rude as it is, we for the present go less wrong by leaving the thing to settle itself than by settling it artificially in any mode which has yet been tried. But in whatever manner that question may ultimately be decided, the true moral and social idea of labor is in no way affected by it until laborers and employers perform the work of industry in the spirit in which soldiers perform that of an army, industry will never be moralized, and military life will remain what, in spite of the antisocial character of its direct object, it has hitherto been—the chief school of moral cooperation. Thus far of the general idea of M. Comte's ethics and religion. We must now say something of the details. Here we approach the ludicrous side of the subject, but we shall unfortunately have to relate other things far more really ridiculous. There cannot be a religion without a cultus. We use this term for want of any other, for its nearest equivalent worship suggests a different order of ideas. We mean by it a set of systematic observances intended to cultivate and maintain the religious sentiment. Though Monsieur Comte justly appreciates the superior efficacy of acts, in keeping up and strengthening the feeling which prompts them. Over any mode whatever of mere expression, he takes pains to organize the latter also with great minuteness. He provides an equivalent both for the private devotions and for the public ceremonies, of other faiths. The reader will be surprised to learn that the former consists of prayer. But prayer, as understood by M. Comte, does not mean asking it is a mere outpouring of feeling. And for this view of it he claims the authority of the Christian mystics. It is not to be addressed to the grande etre, to collective humanity, though he occasionally carries metaphors so far as to style this a goddess. The honours to collective humanity are reserved for the public celebrations. Private adoration is to be addressed to it in the persons of worthy individual representatives, who may be either living or dead, but must in all cases be women. For women, being the cesse a represent the best attribute of humanity, that which ought to regulate all human life. Nor can humanity possibly be symbolized in any form but that of a woman. The objects of private adoration are the mother, the wife, and the daughter, representing severally the past, the present, and the future and calling into active exercise the three social sentiments veneration attachment and kindness we are to regard them whether dead or alive as our guardian angels les vrais anges gardiens if the last two have never existed or if in the particular case any of the three types is too faulty for the office assigned to it their place may be supplied by some other type of womanly excellence even by one merely historical Be the object living or dead, the adoration, as we understand it, is to be addressed only to the idea. The prayer consists of two parts—a commemoration, followed by an effusion. By a commemoration, M. Comte means an effort of memory and imagination, summoning up with the utmost possible vividness the image of the object. And every artifice is exhausted to render the image as lifelike, as close to the reality, as near an approach to actual hallucination as is consistent with sanity this degree of intensity having been as far as practicable attained the effusion follows every person should compose his own form of prayer which should be repeated not mentally only but orally and may be added to or varied for sufficient cause but never arbitrarily it may be interspersed with passages from the best poets when they present themselves spontaneously as giving a felicitous expression to the adorer's own feeling these observances Monsieur Comte practised to the memory of his clotilde, and he enjoins them on all true believers. They are to occupy two hours of every day, divided into three parts—at rising, in the middle of the working hours, and in bed at night. The first, which should be in an a kneeling attitude, will be commonly the longest, and the second the shortest. The third is to be extended as nearly as possible to the moment of falling asleep, that its effect may be felt in disciplining even the dreams. The public cultus consists of a series of celebrations or festivals, eighty-four in the year, so arranged that at least one occurs in every week. They are devoted to the successive glorification of humanity itself, of the various ties political and domestic among mankind, of the successive stages in the past evolution of our species, and of the several classes into which M. Comte's polity divides mankind. M. Comte's religion has moreover nine sacraments, consisting in the solemn consecration, by the priests of humanity, with appropriate exhortations, of all the great transitions in life, the entry into life itself, and into each of its successive stages, education, marriage, the choice of a profession, and so forth. Among these is death, which receives the name of transformation, and is considered a passage from objective existence to subjective to living in the memory of our fellow-creatures. Having no eternity of objective existence to offer, M. Comte's religion gives it all he can, by holding out the hope of subjective immortality, of existing in the remembrance and in the posthumous adoration of mankind at large, if we have done anything to deserve remembrance from them. At all events, of those whom we loved during life, and when they too are gone, of being included in the collective adoration paid to the Grand Etre. People are to be taught to look forward to this as a sufficient recompense for the devotion of a whole life to the service of humanity. Seven years after death comes the last sacrament, a public judgment by the priesthood on the memory of the defunct. This is not designed for purposes of reprobation, but of honor, and any one may by declaration during life exempt himself from it if judged and found worthy he is solemnly incorporated with the grand etre and his remains are transferred from the civil to the religious place of sepulture le bois sacré qui doit entourer chaque temple de l'humanité this brief abstract gives no idea of the minuteness of m comte's prescriptions and the extraordinary height to which he carries the mania for regulation by which Frenchmen are distinguished among Europeans, and M. Comte among Frenchmen. It is this which throws an irresistible air of ridicule over the whole subject. There is nothing really ridiculous in the devotional practices which M. Comte recommends, towards a cherished memory or an ennobling ideal, when they come unprompted from the depths of the individual feeling. But there is something ineffably ludicrous in enjoining that everybody shall practice them three times daily for a period of two hours—not because his feelings require them, but for the premeditated purpose of getting his feelings up. The ludicrous, however, in any of its shapes is a phenomenon with which M. Comte seems to have been totally unacquainted. There is nothing in his writings from which it could be inferred that he knew of the existence of such things as wit and humour the only writer distinguished for either, of whom he shows any admiration, is Molière, and him he admires not for his wit but for his wisdom. We notice this without intending any reflection on M. Comte, for a profound conviction raises a person above the feeling of ridicule. But there are passages in his writings which, it really seems to us, could have been written by no man who had ever laughed. We will give one of these instances, besides the regular prayers m comte's religion like the catholic has need of forms which can be applied to casual and unforeseen occasions these he says must in general be left to the believer's own choice but he suggests as a very suitable one the repetition of the fundamental formula of positivism viz l'amour pour principe l'ordre pour base et le progrès pour Not content, however, with an equivalent for the pater's and aves of Catholicism, he must have one for the sign of the cross also, and he thus delivers himself. Footnote, footnote. system de Politique Positive, four, one hundred, and footnote. Cette expansion peut être perfectionnée par des signes universels afin de mieux. Développer l'aptitude nécessaire de la formule positiviste à représenter toujours la condition humaine il convient ordinairement de l'enoncer en touchant successivement les principaux organes que la théorie cérébrale assigne à ces trois éléments this may be a very appropriate mode of expressing one's devotion to the grand être but any one who had appreciated its effect on the profane reader would have thought it judicious to keep it back till a considerably more advanced stage in the propagation of the positive religion. As M. Comte's religion has a cultus, so also it has a clergy, who are the pivot of his entire social and political system. Their nature and office will be best shown by describing his ideal of political society in its normal state. With the various classes of which it is composed. End of part two. B. Recording by Bill Borst.